joining me. Um, I am really lucky in that I am at the Virginia uh, conference. Uh, the Virginia Technician Association and the Virginia Medical Association are having their conference this weekend, and I was asked to come speak. And of course, when you go to a conference, you run into a lot of fun conference friends who uh, have a lot of letters after their name and are super smart. And if you're like me, you run them down in the hallway and beg them to be a part of your podcast before they make the long drive home. And that's exactly what I did with our guest today, who is Dr. David Dykus. Um, David, I'm sure you have seen on the interwebs. He is a fantastic speaker, a wealth of knowledge when it comes to surgery. He is the person that I text whenever I have questions about post-operative pain control, especially orthopedic surgery. Um, he went to Mississippi State. He did an internship at Auburn. Then he went back to Mississippi for his residency. He is not only a DVM, but he also has a master's degree. He also is a CCRP and he is a DACVS. So a lot of letters, a lot of smarty pants going on here. So we are going to get into it today with Dr. David Dykus. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure uh, to be able to sit down for a little bit and uh you know, talk about a few things. Awesome. So I'm going to let people know that we had to break into a restaurant to report, record this podcast. Um, so there might be some uh, strange 1930s music playing in the background um, simply because we're recording in a hotel, not because we are trying to make this episode any more romantic than it needs to be. Because who isn't getting excited when they're talking about orthopedic surgery and pain control, which is what I want to talk about today with you. Since you're doing this all the time, you're teaching it all over the world. Um, one of the le things that I lectured on today was actually how do we get away from using so many opioids? Certainly with the opioid epidemic that's going on and just recently this past week we learned that methadone was going to be in short supply and there are two different companies that are saying that methadone is now going to be on back order until mid-April. When we think about how reliant we are on opioids but also all the other alternatives, um, tell me how do you manage you know, what kind of things do you usually do for your patients when it comes to pain control? Um, what are your favorite drugs to use? Kind of like run me through a scenario of if you have a TPLO patient, what are you going to use for that patient? All the things so that we know out in uh, podcast land what we should be looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think a lot of it can start even before we have the patient in for surgery. So for example, if I diagnose a dog with a cruciate ligament tear and we're going to proceed with surgical intervention, uh, I'm usually going to try to make them as comfortable as possible even before uh, we get them into the operating room. And so that's typically going to be using some sort of anti-inflammatory. Um, I also like to get them started on gabapentin, mm -hmm. um, hopefully maybe a week or two before surgery, just to help with some of the central sensitization and wind-up pain because many of these patients actually have more chronic joint disease than just an acute ACL tear. Uh, and then if we have some degree of anxiety, I like to add in trazodone uh, before coming into the hospital just to help ease some of the anxiety so that when we get our pre-medications on board, we're going to have a little bit more of a, a better effect because these patients aren't just so stressed out. And so uh, I like to use a, a combination of uh, different analgesics from a pre-med standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so that's usually going to involve, you know, using a little bit of, of an opioid with maybe a dissociative like diazepam or putting in some ketamine. Um, mm -hmm. But once we've got them under general anesthesia, uh, I like using uh, different nerve blocks. Excellent. Um, you know, so are you in the... Um 
I do an epidural camp for my TPLO, or are you in the I'm doing a femoral and sciatic block? In my perfect world, mm -hmm. I would uh, do femoral and sciatic nerve blocks on all of them. Um, sometimes, depending on personnel availability, and, and we'll try to do those ultrasound guided, uh, that can get done. If for some reason it doesn't work out so that we can do a, a femoral or sciatic nerve block, uh, I'll use an epidural mm -hmm. uh, to help with pain management there. My, my goal is that we have these patients at a very comfortable level before we ever even put the scalpel blade to the skin. And the goal being if that we're sufficient with that, uh, we have very little ISO on board, just enough to keep them asleep, mm -hmm. but we're also not running a whole bunch of different CRIs in surgery and loading them up on narcotics. You know, if we need a CRI of some sort, I might be reaching for like a lidocaine, ketamine combination. Yes, I love a ketamine CRI. I think, and I even said today in the lecture on, you know, getting away from opioids, I. I feel like the lidocaine CRI is underutilized in oh, vet med, and especially when you think about the MAC reduction and the cost perspective, mm -hmm. um, you know, local blocks, but then also a, a CRI to get it going systemically is really, really nice adjunctive pain control. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think on the anesthesia monitoring end, if we are effective at having good pain control on board before we start the skin incision, these dogs can usually just sail right through with minimal changes in vitals and we're not having to play around with turning the ISO up or down or getting them things intraoperatively to control blood pressure if they're getting light. Um, and you know, every now and then we'll have a patient that maybe the, the epidural didn't take as well mm -hmm. or maybe our, our nerve block missed the target and, and we just don't have as good of a blockade on board. We might have to add a little something, but for the most part, my hope is to use minimal to no opioids after the, the pre-med. Um, because when I am closing, I also love, anytime I put a scalpel blade to the skin, I use Noceta. Yes, um, yes. I love Noceta. Love Noceta um, too. I had said today in lecture that I think Noceta should kind of steal that tagline of the hot sauce. You know that ad for the hot sauce yeah. where the lady's like, I put that shit on everything. Yeah, exactly. So like Noceta should start using oh, yeah. that because yeah. we could put it on so many things. Oh, I, I mean, I think that the general rule needs to be if you put a scalpel blade to the skin, Noceta needs to be on board. Mm -hmm. Uh, when you're getting done. And my hope there is that in the recovery period, what I absolutely hate is this kind of intermittent use of hydromorphone where we give an injection, they're zonked out, and then they get dysphoric, and then it starts to wear off, and they're kind of between dysphoria and pain, and then we give them more, and we sort of have mm -hmm. these ups and downs. Yeah. Um, I want my patients eating, I want them up moving, I want early return to function. So if we're successful with our local blockade, as that's starting to wear off, our Noceta should be on board. And the only time we're giving a uh, post-operative uh, injectable narcotic in the hospital is when we do our routine um, pain control checks where we're using like a modified Glasgow mm -hmm. to see are these patients painful or are they comfortable, especially if we have a patient that maybe seems a little uh, agitated to try to determine is this patient dysphoric or, or painful. If they have some breakthrough pain, we'll use a rescue analgesia. But mm -hmm. but my my hope is that they're they're sailing through. They've got their anti-inflammatories on board. The minute they're eating, we're getting them back on their anti-inflammatories and gabapentin mm -hmm. uh, to go home. I don't use a lot of uh, opioids when I send them home either. You know, if anything, I might send home three days or so of coding, but, mm -hmm. but usually if our Noceta is on board and appropriate and we, we were able to have appropriate analgesia before we even put the scalpel to the skin, 
they can be pretty comfortable. You know, the, as you know, Cedo wears off, the owners may sometimes think around day three they're a little bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But in ideal world, if I can manage them on an anti-inflammatory and, and gabapentin for some period after surgery to get that initial inflammatory phase under control with the anti-inflammatories, maybe continue the gabapentin out a little bit longer. I think we get really comfortable patients um, that aren't zonked out at home, that aren't mm-hmm. going through these, you know, aspects of when we see with tramadol where they're kind of spacey mm-hmm. and, and they're not really wanting to eat as much and they're lying around and then the owners worry because they're not going outside and pooping. Mm-hmm. You know, every owner worries that yeah. their dog hasn't pooped after surgery. But, uh, you know, trying to rely less and less on narcotics and, and trying to rely more on getting local control so we can resume back to as normal function as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Because then we're going to get back to the normal things, eating normally, the pooping normally, uh, and then getting them up and moving so we can yeah. get joints in motion. Which and we is do the want them up and moving. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I have a couple of questions just to follow up from what you said, just to make the distinction because I get asked this a lot because I am a fan of Nocida. And what some people will say to me is that their doctors are really nervous about giving a femoral and sciatic block and then layering Noceta on top of it. So they'll just do the Noceta. Um, but, uh, you know, at my anesthesiologist, it sounds like what you're saying is you're using the femoral and sciatic blocks really to control intra, but you're also using the Noceta. So you're doing both of those things. Oh, absolutely. Correct? Absolutely. And, and the way I look at it is our local blockade is going to basically give us adequate pain control before we even start surgery so we don't get that all of a sudden surge of discomfort because we have inadequate pain control on board. I think, you know, we could give them lots of opioids and help with that, but the problem is, is we're going to be fighting after surgery of of pain control versus dysphoria. We're going to be fighting in surgery as far as controlling the ISO levels, controlling heart rate, blood pressure. We start adding in all sorts of medications. And so I feel like if we get the blockade on board, great. At some point after surgery, that blockade's going to start to wear away. And that, at that point, the Noceta's on board. And the Noceta's going to long surpass mm-hmm. that blockade. So the blockade's gone, but then we've got local control at the incision site where, you know, some would argue, well, gosh, you've done a TTA or a TPLO. You've cut the bone. You're not doing anything with the bone control there. Okay, I get that. But the blockade's on board. That area should be completely mm-hmm. uh, blocked out when we make the cut. And then from the Noceta standpoint of things, uh, we're providing a lot of pain control to the more superficial tissues, especially all mm-hmm. those nerve endings at the skin where we can actually get a good bit of pain. Yeah. So I, I think using the combination of both is, is the absolute best way to, to do it. Okay. And then another question I have is about the NSAIDs because I think, you know, um, getting my, being a CVPP and I'm sure you as a CCRP know how important NSAIDs are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was interesting that you said that you start them on NSAIDs before the surgery if they can handle it. So, um, and how long and then how long after do you give them an injection the day of mm-hmm. surgery? How does that work with their NSAIDs? Yeah, so most of them, when they come to me, they're usually already on an, an anti-inflammatory. If they're not, I'll try to put them on an NSAID. Um, my hope there is, you know, even and what kills me is the owner comes in and says, well, he doesn't appear painful, but he's limping. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking he's, he's <laughs> limping because he's painful. And so uh, many times just getting them on the anti-inflammatory, they'll notice a significant improvement in limb function. Um, And then as far as uh, when they come into the hospital, hopefully they've gotten their anti-inflammatory the night before. 
Um, when they come in, we'll typically do an injection if we can, if they've been on something like uh, carprofen where we have an injectable carprofen. Uh, I'll usually wait until the recovery period to do that. Mm -hmm. I know, you know, some people think, well, let's give it to them at induction. And mm -hmm. some people worry about, well, what happens if we have a little bit of reduction in renal blood flow? Could we have some exacerbative effects? Um, so I typically wait until we are in the recovery period. We'll give them um, usually a 12-hour dosage. Um, mm -hmm. So that way, the very next morning, we can get them right back on their oral uh, carprofen. If we have dogs that are, you know, really anxious or aggressive, we might do a 24-hour dose. So that way, we can just rely on the owners to, to start giving the carprofen once they're discharged the next day. Um, as far as how long I keep them on it afterwards, I'm going to go on a on an as-prescribed basis for a roughly about 10 to 14 days. So that okay. that initial inflammatory response then we're going to try to see where we can start to use it on a more as-needed basis thereafter because mm -hmm. with these patients around that two-week mark is when we're going to start pushing them from a rehabilitative standpoint so we are going to push the tissues a little bit and if we push the tissues a little bit where we have some discomfort I have no problem using an anti-inflammatory as needed during those periods because yeah. to make progress we have to be comfortable mm -hmm. and to make progress we also have to push the tissues a little bit and so there has to be the balance of pushing the tissues enough to gain, but not pushing so much we push them into pain or discomfort. And so we'll track them out, making sure that they're comfortable. And if they're not as comfortable as I would like, I'll keep them on the anti-inflammatory. Um, there is the worry about, oh my gosh, and people, they want you off of an anti-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. It can interfere with bone healing and mm -hmm. these things. There's actually a, a couple studies that have looked at this, and, and they found that uh, using it at a prescribed dosage for shorter periods of time shouldn't have much of an effect on bone healing. Okay. If there is a little bit of an effect on bone healing, it's probably clinically insignificant. Um, you know, I'm not just going to keep a dog on a standard dose of carprofen, for example, for 8 or 12 weeks. You know, mm -hmm. we're going to go two weeks solid, and then we're going to try to kind of use it on a more as-needed basis thereafter. Um, the gabapentin... I tend to use longer um, just because I think from a you know modulation of chronic neuropathic pain, it can certainly be helpful because you know we've just either put a camera into the joint from an arthroscopy standpoint or we've made an incision and done an arthrotomy. There's a lot of nerve endings there. And I, and I think you know when we look at OA, for example, there's joint effusion, which causes capsular distension. That's going to fire up a lot of those nerve endings. And over time, we're going to get that kind of chronic uh, wind-up pain. And so you know I'll continue gabapentin sometimes out for 30 days or so after surgery and then try to you know wean them down off of that to, you know hopefully control some of those things yeah so I kind of love that you said you wean them down because I think that again when we when I was going through my training as far as like looking at chronic pain and being on a drug like gabapentin um, if we just stop it abruptly there have been some reports of patients getting this rebound pain yeah so you usually will taper their dose we'll try down. to taper down especially if we've been on it uh, long term mm -hmm. um, I'll try to you know taper uh, down probably over a couple week period so we're not just going to stop at cold turkey, but we may go, you know, if we're using it at a, at a particular dosage range three times a day, we may drop the, the dosage range a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the challenge is, is, is in the dog, I think gabapentin really needs to be more like a three times a day, a day. type drug. So it's, it's hard to say, well, let's go from three times to two times a day because mm -hmm. then it's kind of like, well, are you technically tapering them down at that point because from a pharmacokinetic standpoint, there may be a period where they're already below subtherapeutic mm -hmm. levels and you've technically 
taking them off of it at that point. So I usually try to go down the dosage range rather than the frequency. Mm -hmm. um, and I use a pretty high dosage. I mean, I'm usually around like 10 migs per keg or so, and then I'll try to maybe drop it to like six or eight and then, you know, kind of slowly taper it down from there. Okay. So one last question that I have um, is because you are a CCRP and you are so well-versed in rehabilitation and we know that rehabilitation does play a big role in helping these patients return to normal function, um, are there any rehabilitation exercises? Are there, is there anything that the like nurses can do uh, for the patients? Uh, passive range of motion, any kind of massage techniques? Is there anything that they can do in the first 24 hours that they're hospitalized to help keep their patients comfortable from a rehab standpoint? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, you know in that initial post-op period, we want early return of joint motion, but sometimes they're not able to want to put weight down mm -hmm. walking, and we know that active muscle engagement is better than passive, but if we're not at a point where we can really have good active muscle engagement, the passive at things work great. So uh, range of motion exercises, some light stretching, uh, some light massage therapy. You know, those first probably three or four days after surgery, we're not pushing a lot of aggressive mm -hmm. things, but uh, what the veterinary nurse is going to be able to do, you know, our ice packing to help mm -hmm. with incision healing. If we have the ability to do photobiomodulation or laser therapy, I think that can be helpful from an incisional healing standpoint and, and minimizing inflammation mm -hmm. standpoint. Certainly, uh, you know, doing a lot of just sort of light massage can help with some of the post-operative swelling and edema, improving comfort there, um, and then the light passive range of motion and, and stretching exercises. So absolutely, I think they can be involved in, in some of that care. And I, and I think we tend to kind of sideline some of those things. Um, you know, a lot of times dogs come out of recovery. They get put in the run, and then they get kind of checked on every four mm -hmm. hours, and, and then maybe they get iced down, maybe they don't. But uh, you know, really involving the, the everyone uh, in terms of you know the appropriate post-op care to make these dogs as comfortable as possible, because these things do aid in comfort. You know, icing down yeah. the surgical area helps with pain management as well. So uh, certainly, there's the ability for people in the hospital to be involved with with that aspect of things, and. I I think it's something important that needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah. I mean, I mention it because, again, if I'm trying to get a patient not, I don't want my patients on fentanyl steroids forever. Mm -hmm. um, I, again, I like drugs. You know, drugs are great, but I do think there are things that sometimes we not drug modalities that we can be doing to help make our patients comfortable in that first 24 hours that they're staying in hospital with us after surgery. So it's good to know there's all kinds of options out there. It doesn't mean just giving more opioid, more opioid. There's a lot of things at our disposal. Um, and that's all the time we have. And I'm so excited that you sat down with us. Thank you so much for taking time out of your drive back to Maryland. Uh, and I hope that we can have you on the podcast again at some point. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It's been a joy to talk. I'm glad that we're on the same page yeah. <laughs> uh, with, with these things. And uh, I'm happy to come back at any time. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Douglas. Yeah, thank you. 